welcome to the Bridge Policy Download, produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Today, we're bringing you the audio from a recent webinar we held on progressive social security reforms. If you'd like to contact a scholar involved in this webinar, please email outreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. Next, you'll hear from Karen Zarnecki, Vice President of Outreach at Mercatus, who will be moderating the discussion. My name is Karen Zarnecki. I'm Vice President of Outreach for the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Thank you for joining us today for our webinar to hear from some of the top experts on Social Security reform. Now, Social Security remains one of the largest and most important federal programs affecting Americans' economic lives. When we think about Social Security reform, often we think it will be all pain and no gain. But Chuck Blahouse will explain how scaling back the program's instances of regressive and counterproductive income redistribution will slow costs in the growth of the program, strengthen finances, and improve system equity. I am very pleased to have Chuck Blahouse, Jason Fickner, and Ben Ritz with us to discuss their research and share their individual perspectives on the best ways to improve Social Security's treatment of individual participants while also strengthening system funding. Chuck Blahouse holds the J. Fish and Lillian F. Smith Chair at the Mercatus Center. He studies federal fiscal policy with an emphasis on the largest mandatory spending programs, including Social Security and the major federal health programs. Blahouse served as the public trustee for Social Security and Medicare from 2010 through 2015. He was formerly the deputy director of President Bush's National Economic Council as well. Jason Fickner is a fellow with the Bipartisan Policy Center and a senior lecturer at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. His research focuses on social security, federal tax policy, federal budget policy, retirement security, and policy proposals to increase saving and investment. Fickner served in several positions at the Social Security Administration, including acting deputy commissioner of social security, and he was a senior economist for the Congressional Joint Economic Committee. Ben Ritz is the director of the Progressive Policy Institute's Center for Funding America's Future, which develops policy proposals to strengthen public investments in the foundation of our economy, modernize federal health and retirement programs to reflect an aging society, and transform our tax code to reward work over wealth. Ben has also worked on federal budget issues at the Bipartisan Policy Center, including sequestration, budget process reform, and the federal debt limit. For the format today, after each panelist presents, they'll have an opportunity to respond to each other. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. And now, Chuck, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for the very nice introduction. And uh, thanks to Mercatus for hosting this event. Thanks to everyone for attending and for your interest in what I think is a very important and interesting subject. And thanks perhaps most of all to Jason and Ben for uh, participating in this and giving us the benefits of their insights and their commentary. All right. Well, the title of my talk today is Progressive Social Security Reform. And the presentation that I'm going to make today, it's based on a longer research study that I published through the auspices of the Mercatus Center recently. It's a very long study. It's a very comprehensive study. And it was intended to be something of a one-stop shopping guide to Social Security reform that would enable readers, if you want to understand how to put together a Social Security reform proposal that serves your own particular value judgments, it would have anything and everything you would need to know. 
But obviously, there's more material in a study like that than can be covered in a forum such as this. And so in this forum, I, I just wanted to single out one theme and talk a bit about that and invite the commentary of, of Jason and Ben with respect to it. And that is basically my finding that progressive social security reforms are highly desirable and, and achievable and perhaps counterintuitively would also advance us uh, down the road to a more financially solid system. Now, all of this discussion is taking place in the context of something we're generally aware of, which is that Social Security faces a significant financing shortfall. Trustees have been warning about this financing shortfall for years, and that is a big problem. It's a problem that lawmakers are going to have to deal with. It's a problem lawmakers are probably going to have to deal with sooner than they want, It's a problem that's being made worse by the COVID-induced economic recession. And that's the context in which we are operating. And lawmakers have put off dealing with this for a long time, largely because it seems unpleasant. We're going to have to make some very difficult choices to solve the problem. And the problem has already reached a pretty large and critical stage. The changes that we would have to make, whether changes to tax collections or eligibility ages or benefit growth rates, all of that it's much larger already than the changes we had to make back in 1983, the time of the of the last major reforms. Uh, and they're becoming more severe all the time and accelerated by, and the problem is being accelerated by uh, the ongoing recession. We're having this discussion in the context of sort of a, a looming financial crisis facing Social Security. Now, again, that's something that lawmakers don't really want to deal with because it involves what are regarded as generally unpleasant choices. But What I found in the course of my research was that Social Security really faces a lot of policy challenges. And then the course of addressing them, the things we would need to do to fix them or repair them, turns out that a lot of those things would actually uh, slow the growth of system costs and improve system finances at the same time. And so instead of being all pain and no gain, there's actually, this doesn't make it politically any easier, I understand, but there actually is something of an alignment of interests between the objectives of getting the program back on track financially and also making the program fairer, more progressive, uh, more effective as uh, income insurance. So why is that? Well, it really comes down to the fundamental math of an income transfer system. We have to remember Social Security is not a savings program. It's not a capital formation program. It's not a program that is basically building economic resources that increase our ability to finance retirement benefits. Rather, it's a pure income transfer system, which means at best, it's a zero-sum game. Anyone who gains income net through Social Security, somebody else has to lose at least that much. In fact, most studies find that Social Security has a slight depressive effect on national saving. And so on balance, it makes us as a nation slightly poorer than we'd otherwise be. So it's not It's not creating magic income out of nothing. It's simply moving income around. And when you have a program like this uh, that is an income redistribution program, you need to constantly reevaluate it and reassess whether the income transfers occurring through the program are actually consistent with public understanding and with societal goals for the program, whatever they turn out to be. Now, let me be specific here about some of the forms of redistribution that I'm talking about, because I think they're highly pertinent and relevant to how we should think about solutions on the solvency side and uh, solutions with respect to making the program more progressive and more effective as income insurance. Now, we tend to think of Social Security correctly as a program that 
moves income around from early in your life to later in your life. And it does that. And it also is a program that in general gives a helping hand to people with less and asks a little bit more of people with more. And that's true. It, it is slightly progressive on balance. It is certainly a program that redistributes income from early in your life to late in your life. However, it is also a program that redistributes, uh, and this might even be a, a more important phenomenon with respect to the overall level of redistribution in the program. It's a, it's a program that redistributes income according to when you were born. And it does this you know, not just by moving it around between periods of your life, but it actually makes permanent income transfers from some generations to others. So even after each generation moves through the system and collects everything they're going to collect, some generations come out ahead, some generations come out behind. And this has very important implications for whether the program can adequately serve economically vulnerable individuals in the future. Now, there's a lot of numbers on this table, more than I have time to go through. But I would just draw your attention to line E there, that 3.4 number. That's a very important number because basically that is the amount of future workers' earnings that future generations would lose on balance net through the Social Security program. And that's even after they collect all their benefits. They would, they would experience that net income loss. Now, why is that? It's because most of the program's financing shortfall actually consists of an imbalance between the program providing much more in benefits to people who have already entered the system, whether past beneficiaries, current beneficiaries, or current workers about to become beneficiaries. All these people are going to get a lot more in benefits from the program under current law than they would contribute in taxes. And that's very important to understand because going forward, uh, as we think about how to get the system finances back in alignment, we can't do it in a way, not if we want it to serve the economically vulnerable uh, of younger generations. We can't really fix that if we load up all the burdens of fixing the system on younger generations and excuse current participants from contributing. Now, here's another graph that makes the same point. This is a graph that shows a so-called money's worth, the money's worth ratio. And, and it shows selected birth years. I know it looks like an odd collection of birth years there, but those happen to be the ones in the actuary's memo. So those are the ones I, I have available. But the money's worth ratio is basically the ratio of the taxes you put into the program in present value uh, to the benefits that you get out. And if that ratio is, uh, maybe I should have said it the other way around, but if that ratio is one, you're coming out even. And if that ratio is less than one, you're losing money. If that ratio is better than one, then you've come out ahead. And if you look at this graph, the very first thing that probably jumps out at you is that spike up on the left, the, the 1920 birth cohort. They came out way ahead. And there's a reason for that. We made a, a deliberate policy choice as a society not to require the first Social Security beneficiaries to finance their benefits. Basically, their benefits were paid predominantly by taxing the generation that followed them. Uh, and so they got benefits above and beyond what they themselves had paid for by, by a very substantial margin. Now, again, remember, this is a zero-sum program at best. So having made that decision, what that means is that subsequent generations have to put more into the program than they get out. And so our task as policymakers is to try to figure out how to smooth that out and make it as fair and equitable as possible so that but each generation may be contributing a little bit more than they get out, but no generation is treated too terribly unfairly. And, and when you look at this graph, you see some problems. 
uh, you see, for example, that the late baby boomers and the, the Gen Xers, people born in the late 50s, 1960s, early 70s, as things stand right now, they're not going to make any contribution to fixing the problem. And as a consequence, younger people coming into the system, people born in 1997, 2004, these younger workers coming into the system are only going to get 85 cents on the dollar. Now, again, if you have these older generations not contributing at all and these younger generations taking such large losses, we are not going to be able to enable that system to do very much for the economically vulnerable in those younger generations. So this requires us to figure out a way for the boomers and the Gen Xers to make a meaningful contribution to fixing the problem. Now, another very important phenomenon that's been occurring in recent years, widely discussed, is the phenomenon of income inequality, rising income inequality. Now, income inequality by its very nature is unequal, right? Different people are, being, are having very different economic circumstances uh, and outcomes in uh, the economy of the last few decades. And the income gains have not been shared equally across different elements of American society. And one of those ways in which it's been very unequal has been by age. So as this graph shows, this is actually a graph I, I took from another source, but income growth has been much, much greater among older generations relative to younger generations where income growth has been relatively stagnant. And so if you're asking the question, how can we maximize the progressivity of a social security solution? How can we make sure that we're taking care of the people who've been on the losing ends of this uh, growth in income inequality and ask for contributions from people uh, who have been the biggest gainers? It's very hard to do it unless you do something about the rate of growth of benefits over the next couple of decades. Why is that? Well, it's because the biggest gainers in income inequality are much, much more likely to be beneficiaries in the decades ahead than they are payroll tax paying wage earning workers. And if you try to do it all on the tax side, or still worse, if you do a, you know, a big programmatic expansion, you're going to be loading up additional income losses on the generations who are already on the losing ends of the income inequality picture and on the losing end of current law under Social Security. All right, so those are general things we need to be aware of as we approach the problem of how do we get this system to work fairly. Uh, but let me let me burrow down and talk about uh, you know, I've made reference before to some specific instances of dealing with cost growth uh, that we're probably going to have to deal with if we want a system that works well for all Americans and particularly economically vulnerable Americans. Uh, one classic example is the non-working spouse benefit. Now, the non-working spouse benefit in Social Security is well intended. Uh, it's designed to do something that is good, which is to recognize the very considerable value of uh, stay-at-home work, parenting, all the things that stay-at-home work embodies. So it's a, it's a well-intended thing. However, its design reflects very obsolete assumptions about family roles and about workforce composition, uh, which were ascendant views in the early 20th century when this was devised. This was actually originally called the wife's insurance benefit. Uh, it was only paid based on the earnings of a man. And uh, now that has changed. Now any gender can claim a non-working spouse benefit and can be claimed based on anyone's earnings. However, the design of it still reflects those early 20th century assumptions. So for example, it doesn't really uh, account for the fact that parenting today is done by two earner couples. You've, you know, parents are both out in the workforce and both parenting, or you might have single heads of household who are simultaneously trying to raise children and hold down a job at the same time. 
this type of benefit doesn't really um, anticipate those sorts of outcomes. And as a result is that it, it regressively directs income away from many people who need it and have really earned it to people with a lot more who have not um, paid the taxes to qualify for it in the same degree. So for example, if you look at the example of a, a minimum wage earning single mother working her entire career paying payroll taxes, if she retired this year, she'd get a benefit of about $11,000, $12,000 from Social Security. But you contrast that with someone who doesn't enter the workforce, marries the wealthiest of the wealthy, doesn't contribute any payroll taxes, they would qualify for a spousal benefit of around eighteen dollars or $19,000 by virtue of having done that. And so these sorts of very regressive transfers of income uh, suck up precious program resources away from the uh, economically vulnerable, redirecting income to uh, individuals who don't need it as much and, and haven't paid the payroll taxes to really earn it. And let me give you one more specific example before going to my wrap-up points. But another very specific example is the Social Security benefit formula. Now, again, the benefit formula mostly does what it's designed to do. It's designed to be progressive. In effect, it is progressive. On balance, Social Security is more progressive than not. However, there are a lot of pockets of regressive income redistribution, and this, uh, the design of this formula is one reason for that. This formula, it's kind of like a, a system of brackets, much like the system of income tax brackets. So depending on your income, you'll accrue benefits at a certain percentage, and the percentages are designed so that if you're low income, you get a higher rate of return. If you're high income, you get a lower rate of return. So that's a very familiar concept. But the formula is based on your career average earnings. And that's very important, very significant, because that means the system cannot distinguish between someone who is low income and working every year versus someone who is high income and shuttling in and out of the workforce. So the example I give here is the system makes no distinction between, say, a $40,000 a year worker working for 30 years and an $80,000 a year worker uh, working for 15 years. Why is that important? Well, that's important because those two types of people are likely to be in very different household circumstances and have very different levels of access to other income. So uh, the system is trying to steer windfall returns to people who have these low averaged earnings. But it's basically steering the windfall returns to people who work the least as much as it is to people who have low incomes when they work. Now, I don't have time to go through all the numbers here. However, if you, if you take a typical example and comb through the data, you look at people who are called very low earners in the Social Security Administration parlance, and you look at the ones with 20 years of earnings and say, well, how many of these people are actually reliant on their own earnings and, low, and are low-income people who really need this sort of windfall? And the, the answer is it's very few. It's, it's, it's certainly fewer than a third. Most of them are some combination of people who are duly entitled or nearly duly entitled, meaning they are entitled to benefits or they live with a household earner who earns a lot more money, or they are foreign born, they worked abroad, they have substantial uh, earnings earned abroad, substantial other sources of retirement income that Social Security just doesn't see, or they were in a state local retirement plan. You put all these categories together and you realize the system is trying to steer these very high returns uh, mostly to people who actually aren't in the actual low-income categories. Now, there's a fix for this particular one. You could fix this by simply having the benefit formula uh, operate as a function of your annual earnings rather than your lifetime average earnings, more like a private sector pension plan, so that each year you work, you accrue a benefit equal to you know, X percent of what you earned. You could do that. 
That would fix this and it would also improve the work incentives of the system a lot. Uh, but the interesting thing is it would actually also save the system a fair amount of money. Not a fair amount. I, I shouldn't exaggerate. It would save the system a fair amount of money in dollars that you and I would think about. It would close only a small portion of the shortfall. But again, every bit of progress is important. And it would achieve that mostly by reducing payments, reducing the gains for these sort of sporadic higher income earners. Now, those are two very specific examples. I don't have time to go through other specific examples. There are many in the paper. But obviously, there are a lot of things we could do to enhance progressivity. Uh, you could cut the benefit, uh, uh, the bend point factors on the high income end so that people on the high income end are, are accruing benefits more slowly. Um, you could do the opposite. You could increase uh, benefit protections on the low income end. Uh, you could do both. You have to be a little bit careful with, uh, with the minimum benefit increases because if you design it in the wrong way, if you're not careful how you structure it, and if you don't do it in the context of other reforms that hold down the growth of system costs, you can really wreak havoc with the system's work incentives. But it is an option that you could pursue in the right context. You could also raise the cap on taxable wages. Again, that has the downside of asking the younger generations who are already getting treated the poorest to make a disproportionate share of the contributions, but it would be progressive. Uh, it's one of the less unpopular of the solvency options out there. And again, you have to be a little bit careful because if you do it without changing the bend point factors in the formula, you know, you would also be increasing your outlays at the same time as you're collecting additional revenue. So there's some inefficiencies there to be aware of. But nevertheless, these are all options we can draw from uh, to design a progressive solution. Before I close, uh, uh, let me just make one very big and urgent point, which is that if you're trying to optimize the progressivity of the Social Security system, the last thing you should do is an across-the-board benefit expansion. And I've been very concerned lately. There have been a lot of proposals being floated in the recent years to, to take Social Security and make it bigger, sort of just you know, have an across-the-board expansion, people all income levels. Worst possible thing to do if you're trying to make this system better targeted on economically vulnerable people for a, a lot of reasons, many of which I've already discussed here. But it would basically exacerbate the regressive income transfers in the system it would worsen sort of the, the relative efficiency of the, the targeting of benefits. It would wreak havoc with work and savings incentives. But I think the, the biggest problem is that it would be a big benefit increase for the very cohorts who are already coming out the most ahead, and it would be giving them a benefit increase that they didn't pay for, which means the younger generations who are already on the losing end of the income transfers would have to pay for that benefit increase. So from a, from a distributional perspective, it's the last thing in the world you want to do. I hope we don't go down that road. Uh, because all of the policy challenges in the system that I identified in my research would pretty much all be made worse uh, by doing so. Let me just close by saying, summarizing, saying Social Security obviously faces a very significant financing challenge, uh, but it faces a lot of other policy challenges as well. Uh, there are challenges to its efficacy as income insurance because of different ways that it moves money around, some of which are unintentional, some of which people don't understand very well. But nevertheless, they are things that we do need to concern ourselves with if we want the system to be fair, if we want the system to be equitable across generations, if we want it to target its resources on economically vulnerable individuals. Turns out we can do that in a way that saves the system some money in terms of cost growth and thereby strengthens uh, system finances somewhat. And uh, there at the bottom there, I have uh, the link to uh, the paper if you don't successfully manage to copy that, just go to mercatus.org and look for Blah House and Social Security. I'm sure you'll find it. But thank you very much. And I'm very interested to hear the reactions of both Jason and Ben. Thank you. So here we turn it over to Jason. Jason. Thank you. 
So first of all, thank you to the Mercatus Center for inviting me and hosting this event. Uh, thanks, Karen, for the introduction. And thanks to the Mercatus staff uh, for all the work that goes on behind the scenes on this. We appreciate it. And Ben, of course, thank you for being here as well. Chuck, excellent paper. For those of you who haven't yet seen it, it's a very comprehensive, some might say exhaustive piece of research. There's a lot in there. Uh, it is worth reading. There's, just, there's too much for us to cover uh, in just an hour. So I want to use my time to make some points that Chuck raised. I want to you know, sort of double down on a few, make a few extra points, talk about some reform ideas, but leave a lot of time for, for Ben and then, of course, for us to have Q&A. So first, one of the things that if Chuck didn't make it, I want to reiterate or at least drive it home, the need for reform is evident. The fiscal challenges we are facing are dramatic. We do not have the current financing structure in place to pay for the benefits that have been scheduled, or as some call it promised. The 2020 trustees report uh, estimated that the combined trust funds, so the OASI and DI trust funds together, would be depleted in 2035. But that estimate was made before COVID. Uh, they lock in their assumptions basically in January of the year. COVID, of course, is basically March. And so it doesn't take into account the great recession we have seen, uh, the layoffs, the lack of income coming into to the trust funds from payroll taxes. And some work we've done at the bipartisan policy center suggests that that trust fund depletion date may now be as early as 2030 or maybe even 2028. But think about if it's 2030. That means that trust fund depletion could happen within the next decade. Reforms need to happen now. Now, again, there's a lot of uncertainty about how long this pandemic is going to last, how quick will the recovery be, but please don't minimize the dramatic nature of the need for reform now. The trustees have been calling for reform for a long time. Uh, Chuck was a trustee for several years. I was the secretary of the board of trustees over a decade ago. I signed three of the reports. And to give you an idea of why sort of the reform is needed now, it's been needed for a decade or more. Uh, we've seen this challenge coming. But over 10 years ago, when I was working on the trustees' reports, had we then, so over 10 years ago, had we then just lifted and eliminated the taxable maximum on payroll tax contributions, that would have been pretty much enough to get us back to 75-year solvency. We've now lost that option. If we do that today, we're probably going to cover maybe a third or 40%. And that's, again, a pre-COVID number. So our option choices are now minimized. And so that means the delta is greater. And so the reforms we have to do have to be larger on the tax side or on the benefit reduction or slowing of growth side. So the need for reform is great. Chuck mentions a statistic in his paper, which he didn't mention in his presentation, so I'll mention it. But the time we get near trust fund depletion, even a 100% elimination of all new benefit claims would be insufficient to avert solvency. So think about that. We get near trust fund depletion and we say, sorry, no more new benefits. We can't take any more out of money. Even that's not going to divert a depletion. We need to make reforms. Chuck did mention we shouldn't make things worse. I think we should double down, triple down on that statement. We don't have the money yet in place through our current financing structure with the taxes we have uh, in law to pay for benefits we've scheduled and promised. Now is not the time to make the matter worse, increase benefits without paying for them. And again, if we do raise taxes, we should maybe raise taxes to pay for what we've promised, not for an expansion of benefits. So again, the need for reform is, is really, really great. Uh, Chuck in this paper talks about something called income insurance and sort of realign the program. Uh, we need to modernize the Social Security system. And, and Chuck talks about various ways to do that to make sure we're not over-benefiting certain spouses. Uh, we change the equitable treatment of gener intergenerational transfers. But we should talk about what it means to modernize the system. And income insurance is a great sort of term to sort of hang on to as a principle. 
Because if you think about insurance from an economist standpoint, insurance is something you get to mitigate against a low probability but high cost event. We buy life insurance, house insurance, car insurance. In the event that our house gets destroyed, our car gets in an accident, they're low probability, but they're very high cost. We can do insurance programs from a social insurance scheme as well. The name of the program, originally, it's the OASDI program. It's the Old Age Survivors Insurance and Disability Insurance Program. We're trying to mitigate against old age. Well, back when the program started, if you were lucky to live to 65, you weren't on benefits for more than a few years. Now people look at the program as not being old age insurance, but being a retirement program. And so that takes on different principles, different connotations, what we need to do for reform. But Chuck's reform proposals take us back to more thinking about how we make sure people don't fall into poverty, that if they get to old age, which now is probably somewhere around 77, 80 or greater, that they have income uh, support if they outlive their savings. So we can't walk away from the idea that Social Security originally was a three-legged stool where you had uh, Social Security, you had income from savings, and you had some sort of pension uh, for an employer. So we have to keep in mind that there's still three legs at retirement stool, and we have to prop up not just Social Security, but employer contributions and individual savings as well. Chuck mentioned that the system is progressive, especially on a whole, when you take into account taxes paid uh, and benefits received, but it's not generationally fair or equitable. And I think that's a really important point to keep out, keep note of as well, because Chuck notes in his paper and he showed in the presentation as well, that much larger income gains are going to those who are currently on benefits than those who are currently now paying in. And if you think about those who are paying in, and yes, I'm talking to you millennials, any change to the program now is going to fall on you. Uh, when we talk about changing benefits formulas, we talk about changing taxes, you're going to ba- bear the brunt of both of those. Um, from a voting block standpoint, I've always been interested, like some millennials are those born between roughly 1981 and 1996. Uh, Gen Z is 1997 to 2012. If you take the millennials and Gen Z together, they are the largest voting block. They are together a larger voting block than baby boomers. I'm not suggesting intergenerational warfare is on our front, but it does mean that those who vote should take interest in the policies that are out there. And if you want your voices heard, you should make it known because, again, you will bear the brunt of sort of any reforms that go in, whether it is on the tax side, the benefit side, or a combination of the two. Uh, Another thing I want to talk about quickly before I go to some reform ideas and turn it over to Ben is when we talk about the idea of benefit changes, uh, Chuck mentioned the idea of doing like an annual PIA, which some people call a mini PIA, but looking at it annually as opposed to averaging your 35 years. That's a fantastic way of thinking about some reforms we could do uh, because that rate rewards individual work and it also treats people more equitably based on income. Uh, Chuck mentioned the idea of someone who had a higher income that worked 15 years versus a lower income for longer. Those are different people and we should make sure the Social Security Insurance Program treats them differently based on their income and, and, and their means. Uh, so that's sort of one of some of the basic ideas. Um, I do want to get to some, oh, the other thing before I go into reforms, only in Washington can a slowing of growth be called a cut. So this is something that's bothered me for years. Uh, imagine you go to your employer and your employer says, you've had a fantastic year. We're going to give you a raise. We're going to give you a 5% increase in your salary. Congratulations. And you sat back and said, what? 5%? I was expecting 10. You just gave me a salary cut. That is not a salary cut. You just got a 5% increase. So when we talk about the idea of changes, for example, the cost of living increase, most of the reforms out there do increase benefits, 
but they slow the growth of benefits. So it's not a cut. I know we get a lot of hate messages right now from people who want to stick with that rhetoric, but I don't think that's a cut. It is a slowing of the growth of benefits. And some of the reforms that are out there that we're talking about today and some of Chuck's do sort of slow the growth. It is not trying to give people a cut in benefits. Some would reduce benefits in a serious nature for higher income workers who could probably afford it. But when we talk about some reforms like the COLA changes to going to change CPI, that is a slowing of growth. It is not a cut, at least in my opinion. Uh, the last thing I mentioned, then I'll talk about some reforms and turnover, Ben. The gold standard for reforms is to try to get to 75-year solvency. Uh, I think we've missed that window. I think we've given up way too much time to do reform. And if we hold ourselves to the gold standard of 75 years for solvency, we're not going to get it. Uh, we're going to keep kicking the can down the road to we have trust fund depletion. And then we're going to be looking at benefit cuts of 20% across the board or tax increases of 30%. There are some easy things we can do that don't require changing legislation or benefits. Uh, some is nomenclature. We have the early eligibility age, the full retirement age. Those can be misleading. Chuck mentioned the retirement earnings test. Most people think of it as a tax. We could change the nomenclature to temporary benefit withholding, for example. doesn't require a change in the law. It just sort of changes the, uh, the nomenclature. So we could do that. Um, I mentioned the idea of calculating a mini PIA. We should have a stronger minimum benefit. And then we do want to make sure that we do things in a progressive nature um, that holds harmless those who really need the benefit protection and draw from those who can more afford to self-insure a little bit at the high end of the income spectrum. So that I'll turn for Ben. Thank you. All right, Ben, it's all yours. All right. I think that there are four key priorities uh, that we should look to in evaluating what constitutes progressive social security reform. Uh, I think first and foremost, we need to make sure that it's a program that guarantees retirement security, particularly for uh, our most vulnerable populations. So that means making sure that uh, particularly low earners who throughout their career have not had uh, opportunities to save because their incomes have been so low or they don't have workplace retirement plans, we need to make sure that we give them a basic minimum standard of living to keep them out of poverty. And I really, we want a system that's going to keep all of our seniors and people who can't work out of poverty. So that's the first priority. The second priority is, as, as Chuck uh, pointed out with his charts, we want a program that is intergenerationally fair uh, in the same way that we want to make sure that we are providing adequate support to lower income retirees. We also want to make sure that we are not redistributing wealth from uh, higher earning cohorts to relatively lower earning cohorts. And so uh, we don't want to exacerbate those trends that he highlighted in, uh, in that chart. I think the third priority is we want to reward work over wealth. We want a program that doesn't give people more money just because they had a, a higher income, but we want it to be, uh, if we're going to be giving people higher benefits, even if they don't need them, we want it to be because they earn those benefits. Um, and I think this is particularly important with regard to the point he made about how uh, the benefit formula treats that $80,000 a year for 15-year worker the same as the $40,000 a year uh, for 30-year worker. And then I think the last uh, important piece is we want to make sure that we are preserving room in the federal budget for other progressive priorities. I think one of the downsides of broad-based social security expansion uh, and some of the proposals that come with it is that we have a lot of other challenges facing uh, our country from climate change to deteriorating infrastructure that haven't been invested in over the last several decades. 
And if we take all of this revenue that could be, and also this is to say nothing of the shortfalls facing uh, Medicare, which are even larger than the ones facing Social Security. I think that if you take all of the tax revenue that should be going to those programs and we put it all on Social Security and we uh, jeopardize those other critical progressive priorities, I think that is that is also moving in the wrong direction. And so those are the four things I look at when I try to evaluate what is progressive social security reform. I think that, uh, so I'll just talk about some proposals that we worked on uh, at PPI that I think can, can go a long way towards addressing these, these issues. We support the spousal benefit changes that Chuck was talking about I think those are that's a very important uh, element for making sure that we're not redistributing uh, income away from lower earning couples to higher earning couples. I think that's that's a very important change. Uh, we came up with a, a benefit structure that we call uh, a work credit benefit structure that bases the benefit more on how many years you work than how much income you have. This is uh, similar to the annual PIA concept that Jason and Chuck both talked about, but is is a little bit more aggressive. Uh, in really making it a program that is based on how many years you work rather than how much income you earn and making sure that we're able to increase benefits at the bottom uh, while reducing overall program costs. And then I think we need to look uh, on the revenue side too. I think that I, I might disagree a little bit on, on what the right mix of revenues and benefits, uh, benefit reforms is. I think I'm probably of the panelists, probably the most in favor of looking on the revenue side. But at the same time, we don't want all of it to come from revenue for those intergenerational reasons. Uh, But I think there's a benefit in looking at alternative financing mechanisms. I think the payroll tax cut, as the payroll tax as it's currently structured, uh, is a tax that falls solely on workers and on workers making below uh, 100, I think now it's $140,000 a year. And we should look at financing mechanisms, especially if we're uh, seeing politicians reluctant to look on the benefits side. We want revenue mechanisms that will uh, make sure that everybody pays their fair share. And that includes uh, the higher earners across generations, but it also should be generationally fair. And so if we're looking at options on the revenue side, I think it makes sense to look at policies like a progressive value added tax or consumption taxes that will distribute the burden of uh, addressing program shortfalls more evenly across generations instead of asking those younger workers who are already not getting a particularly good deal from the system uh, to shoulder a disproportionate share of the burden. And if you take these policies together, along with some of the ones that uh, Jason and Chuck talked about, you can create a system that increases benefits at the bottom, provides a better floor of retirement security for uh, seniors across generations, improves program solvency, and make sure that it's a program that both provides a safety net and rewards those who work and contribute to the program without uh, redistributing income away from uh, lower income, vulnerable populations to those who don't particularly need the benefits. Uh, And so with that, I'll wrap up and we can move to uh, question and answer. Okay, we've got a number of questions that have come in from people who are watching this briefing. Um, I'm going to ask each of you, though, for a quick reaction to some of the comments. Uh, Chuck, you had a good presentation. They reacted to you. Do Would you like to react to either one of their comments? Well, yeah. I mean, just very brief. Well, I'll try to be brief. There's please, a lot here. Please. We've got questions. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I agree with almost everything that they both said. I think Jason's point about the distinction between 
income insurance and a full-fledged retirement program is just something we have to think about. I don't know what the right answer is. We as a society do need to know what we're trying to have this program do, though, uh, so that we can decide whether it's actually doing it. And, you know, some of the data I didn't have time to present, but, you know, for even, say, the second highest income quintile, Social Security is providing about two-thirds of their sort of target retirement income. And the question is, is that what we want to be doing? I mean, is it it's certainly gone far beyond income insurance if we're actually taking people in the upper part of the income distribution and paying for the majority of their retirement needs. Um, and so we just need to ask that question as to, you know, how much are we trying to just insure people against income loss versus actually, um, you know, pay for a full-fledged retirement program uh, for everyone throughout the, uh, the income spectrum. Uh, with respect to Ben, I, I was very pleased with, um, you know, his four principles. I found myself in agreement with all four of the principles. It's interesting that um, the, the one bullet about rewarding work over, um, you know, income, he actually, I think we're in the same place and actually went further than I have saying, let's, let's have a benefit that actually is an explicit function of number of years of work as opposed to, you know, an annual benefit uh, that reflects your earnings for that year. Uh, and I actually have no problem with that. I actually, I like that in many ways. Uh, that in some respects goes further than I have gone. And if, uh, you know, if, if Ben or others were to try to advance that uh, idea, I think there's some merit in it. Um, and, you know, you could treat my proposal as a compromise fallback if, uh, if you couldn't get people to, uh, to go along with it. But it's, it's certainly, I think, very similar in spirit, if, if anyways, it goes further. Um, and I would just accentuate, I think, what, what Ben said that you know, we need to think about the pressure this is placing on the rest of the budget for a number of reasons. And one, you know, I, I'm sure he's made this pitch with people on the left, just as I have with people on the right. But, but I have said, look, look, no matter what your philosophy is, if you're on the right and you don't want taxes to go through the roof, or if you're on the left and you want to have something to invest in infrastructure or investments in the future, what have you, you have to be in favor of entitlement reform. You can't do either of those things. Uh, without entitlement reform. So whether you're trying to free up money for other investments on the left or um, keep taxes from going through the roof on the right, you know, there's a commonality of interest here if we would, we would recognize. Okay. Um, I'm going to, I'd like to go to the questions if we could. And this question is really for everyone. It says, how ha are Dr. Blahouse's reforms defined as progressive reform? Some progressives want to expand the program. I think, Ben, you mentioned this. And so is this definition of progressive reform just based on redistribution from high income to low income? And if each of you could answer this quickly. Jason, why don't you go? So the idea when you think about what we mean by progressivity is first think about the program as a whole. So, so one for, again, uh, higher income people will pay higher dollar amounts, higher nominal taxes going in. And if you think about is it a share of income? While the taxes sometimes seem regressive for lower income people, they get a higher return, a higher replacement in the benefit side. So the program itself is progressive. So the reforms that, that Chuck is talking about would, would maintain and enhance that progressivity. And some of that is reducing the bend points uh, to reduce benefits for higher income earners. And also at the lower end, uh, maybe having a minimum benefit, which again, has to be done correctly so as not to have more perverse incentives. But that would increase, and Ben mentioned this too, that would make the system more progressive. So you can talk about expanding benefits being progressive, but how those taxes are done could also then make the system even more regressive on the tax side. So it's important to keep the holistic nature when thinking about this. All right, Ben, would you like to address this? Um, I think I pretty much covered my thoughts on it in my remarks, so I'll skip to save time for more questions. Okay, Chuck, do you want to mention anything about this? Yeah, I would just say I define progressive as sort of the tilt. How much are we 
directing system resources in the direction of lower income people relative to higher income people. That's how I define progressive. And I think most people do define it that way, but I think there is a, a, a segment on the left side of the political spectrum that views progressive as just making the government program bigger. And I think that's what I'm challenging in a, in a way with this paper. Uh, I don't think making the program bigger or smaller is inherently progressive. I think how progressive it is is a function of how much is taking care of people on the bottom end and how much is requiring of people on the top end. And, you know, that is a function of that's not necessarily something that happens more or less, because remember, this is a zero sum game. So we can move a lot more money around, but it doesn't necessarily make the program more progressive if we do so. Got it. I, I think some of the uh, presidential uh, campaigns were talking about expanding the program, so perhaps we should chat with them as well. Next question. Do the panelists have suggestions on how to address the misinformation surrounding the Social Security program? Who would like to address that first? By, by having forums like this, right? <laughs> that's, that's what we're trying to do, right? I mean, I don't know. Ben and Jason may have better thoughts on this. Ben, I, 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 go ahead, Ben. So I, I, I think Chuck's right, but part of this also is holding politicians accountable. Uh, we do have some uh, journalists that are being more responsible. Glenn Kessler of the Washington Post, for example, and his fact checker. Uh, AARP is doing a much better job and also making sure that facts are getting out and other misinformation. So we have to do our job you know, as, as responsible people, the National Academy of Social Insurance, all those who work in the Social Security sphere, whether it's politicians, academics, uh, advocates, have to make sure we're getting the right information out and people hold us accountable. I think that's how you do it. All right, Ben, do you want to comment or not? I think there are there are two components. I think uh, on the one hand, developing proposals uh, as we've talked about here that we that we can demonstrate uh, don't expand the program on, on the aggregate, but make the program more progressive, showing the you know the hard numbers behind this. I think that uh, showing versus telling is important here for. Uh, demonstrating uh, how we can make the program more progressive and challenge some of the misinformation. And then I think, uh, as Jason said, holding politicians accountable and, and uh, disputing misinformation when it pops up uh, are the ways to go about it. All right. Allison has sent us three questions and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do all three quickly. The first one, if we want to keep spousal benefits, how do we improve it to make it progressive and less costly? Who would like that one? There's various uh, incarnations of proposals to do that. I propose that we just say, look, you know, you can't as a non-working spouse get a benefit that's higher than someone else, some other modest income person gets paying a whole career of payroll taxes. Mm -hmm. And we just cap it at that amount. You can still have a non-working spouse benefit, but it shouldn't be bigger than a person uh, earns with a, with a full career of payroll tax contributions. But there's other versions that have been introduced. And I would just add, there are ways to do this, you think, in legislative, Allison. So one, you could say we're going to cap it at half the 75th percentile PIA. So, so something that is a technical uh, fix that ties it to PIA where someone falls, and they say no more than half of that level. That would keep the progressivity as well. And Ben, do you want to add anything? I'm in agreement with Jason and Chuck here. All right, great. Next question from Allison. Chuck mentioned the problems with general expansion of benefits, but does he take issue with eliminating the tax max? or instating a social security tax on earners who make over $400,000. Chuck? Uh, actually, this is probably a good opportunity for me to say that, you know, I don't necessarily disagree with, with what Ben has said with respect to revenues. Um, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, revenues are likely to be a part of this picture in the end of the game. One is just the, the math of it, right? It used to be that you could balance the system entirely by price indexing without additional taxes. Now even price indexing benefits will not fix system finances. 
So unless lawmakers are willing to actually legislate real benefit declines from one cohort to the next, which I'm very skeptical of, they're going to have to put additional revenues in. And if they do, they're probably going to want to do it in a progressive way. So increasing the cap on, you know, the, 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 the tax max, the cap on taxable wages is very likely to be a part of this discussion. And, you know, there's other reasons to consider it too. It does broaden the base. And if you're talking about sort of net income losses of younger generations as a percentage of their taxable earnings, you can reduce it by broadening that base uh, somewhat. Having said that, you know, I have to say I'm not an enthusiast about these ideas to kind of create this this stratosphere thing where you tax uh, earnings over 400,000 because you create this weird bubble where you have to either start paying more benefits to people on the very, very high income end, or you have to sever that contribution benefit connection. And that's not something that I personally think we should do. I think once we go down that road of, of severing the connection between you know, the tax contributions people make and the benefits they accrue, social security becomes a very different kind of system. And maybe we want that kind of system but you know, we have to recognize that the reason Social Security benefits have had their reliability and security over the years is because of this perception that those benefits were earned. And if we destroy that by severing that connection, uh, it, it, they're going to be less secure. We just need to be aware of that. Okay. Does anybody else want to address that? Yeah, I I am uh, a lot less supportive of just getting rid of the payroll tax cap uh, for, for a, a different reason, which is if, if you think about what that is, that's applying a, a 12 uh, or 15, if you do the Medicare side, 2% tax uh, on, it's basically a, a 15% marginal tax rate increase uh, on higher earners, whether that's at $150,000 or $400,000. Uh, that's a really big tax increase, uh, especially when we're already uh, taxing at the high end now, 37%. I, as a progressive, have absolutely no problem with those kind of, of tax rates. I, I fully support it and, and our budget blueprint reflects that. But uh, we have a lot of other national needs where I think that revenue needs to go, uh, dealing with Medicare, dealing with the underfunded public investments. Um, And so my concern about just getting rid of this payroll tax cap is it takes all of this progressive revenue off the table for dealing with these other national challenges. And so uh, it's it's something that I'm a lot more hesitant uh, to embrace than you might think. Jason, do you have any comments? It's interesting that Ben and I are probably a little bit more in line with this uh, than we would originally thought up front. I, I am reluctant to raise the payroll taxes on high income earners and also raise the payroll tax in general because we're already taxing labor so much as it is. And I think that's a detriment to work. And so Ben mentioned this somewhat earlier in his remarks about thinking about alternate revenue sources and, and Chuck's probably opposed to this. So it might be a good little back and forth quickly, but I think we should look at additional revenue sources besides trying to latch on to labor, whether it's through payroll taxes or higher income rates and think about what it means to have a carbon tax or a value added tax and where that money can go. Okay. I'm going to combine two questions here. Allison's last question and another. Uh, do you recommend a minimum benefit? If so, how do you do it? And then the other question is, why should the wealthy receive any social security benefits? So who would like to take that one? I can start. Um, I think that, so one of the benefits of the uh, the work credit benefit structure that I described earlier uh, by flattening the benefit across incomes is that really does create a much higher minimum benefit uh, than what we are currently used to with the income-based system. And so uh, if you move towards that kind of structure where you're awarding the benefit based on work rather than income, then you're increasing the, the benefit for a lower end worker, even if they only work 20 years or so. And so I think that uh, you, you need to have a, a higher floor than we have today, but 
you can make structural reforms that don't necessarily involve saying this is the minimum benefit. But I also would, you know, barring that sort of shift in the program, I think there are good ways to uh, design a minimum benefit that I'm sure Chuck or Jason might want to talk about. Okay, Chuck, what do you think? Well, I've, you know, in the course of my career, I've crunched numbers on a lot of different minimum benefit designs, and they're very hard to design. And um, the, the, the pitfalls that you run into are, you know, you either on the one hand don't reach the right people, right? You wind up steering the benefits to households that aren't the people you're trying to, to get to, or you mess up the work incentives. It's very easy to completely destroy the work incentives by uh, building your minimum benefit wrong. Uh, having said that, that's a long way of saying I, I, I'm qualitatively, I think I'm in a very similar place to Ben, but I think if the minimum benefit is structured as a number of years of work, it works a lot better. You don't want to pay, um, you know, an enormous minimum benefit to someone who's only got 12, uh, not enormous, but, you know, your full minimum benefit to someone who's only has 12 years worth of earnings. You know, I think it's better if you, you, know, you have SSI, you have other things that are designed to keep people out of poverty in, uh, in their uh, senior years, but if you make the Social Security minimum benefit uh, kick in at too few years of earnings, then basically people have no incentive to work for the next, at least with respect to the Social Security benefits, for the you know, next 10, 20 years of earnings. So it really does need to step up, I think, with number of earnings years. Okay. And Jason, would you like to comment? So I will agree with Chuck and Ben. I think one of the ways we can help design a better minimum benefit is, again, going to an, an, a mini PIA, looking at it annually as opposed to an average of 35 years. And then to get to the question of why the rich should get some benefit at all, uh, part of this is that it's, they paid into it, but also that's been some of the strengths of the program is that because everyone pays into it, they see it as an earned benefit and not as a welfare program. There's an old joke that you know welfare programs are for the poor, and then those programs are poor programs. And, and so the idea of maintaining that sort of connection, I think, is very important. That's something Chuck has mentioned in his paper as well, is maintaining the connection to earnings, paid contributions, and paid benefits. You could, though, we, right now we tax up to 85% of Social Security benefits for higher income individuals. We could make that 100% taxable. Okay, very good comments. Here's the next question. Uh, for funding purposes, do you all support appropriating money from general appropriations to avoid benefit cuts? Ben, what do you think? I would say uh, no with an asterisk. Uh, in our budget blueprint, we basically uh, put that on the table and said that's something to endorse. And I think we have uh, we have a fundamental question we have to ask, which is, uh, do we want to continue this income link in the program or not? If you move to a program where it's based on work or some other contribution factor, uh, then I think it makes sense to combine uh, the, the, the social security budget with the, the general budget. But I think if we decide that we're not going to go with that approach, that we are going to have a program uh, where we are trying to say the amount you get is tied to how much you put in, then it's important to keep a link between those. And that means uh, making sure that the revenue sources are not pulling from general revenues. Chuck, what do you think about this? Yeah, I would also say no, except I would put three exclamation points after it. I think that's it's a terrible idea. And actually, um, you know, you have to remember Social Security benefits, uh, Social Security is not the third rail accidentally, right? It's the third rail because of this idea of people paid for their benefits. Now, we've got a lot of welfare programs in the, in the general budget. We have programs that people pay for with their income taxes and other people, getting back to what Jason was answering before, other people, um, you know, some people get benefits, but other people don't. When we sever that connection, you create this sort of collision of interests between, you know, the people who are paying for the program but not getting benefits from it and the people who are getting benefits from the program but not paying for it. And the dynamics of that are 
always very different with Social Security. Because of that collision of interests, benefit levels, eligibility rules, means tests, all that stuff is constantly renegotiated. Benefits become a lot less secure. And you have to remember, you might start at one place, but you're not going to end there. So you might say, oh, we'll just put a little bit of general revenues in this year. You know, it's you, know, you can't be a little bit pregnant as the as the story goes. You know, once you're there, you're there. And, the, and it's just going to keep growing after that. Because why would politicians, you know, if they let themselves slide, oh, we don't have to balance uh, payroll tax and benefits now. We'll put in $100 billion of general revenues. That won't be the last time they do it. They'll do a little bit more, a little bit more every year. And then whatever financial discipline ever existed in the program will be gone forever, as will the whole earning benefit construct. So I think it's just, it's a Rubicon we should not cross, in my opinion. All right, we've come to the end of our time. I want to thank you guys for uh, joining the panel today and thank everyone who tuned in. If you have any additional questions or want to find time to speak to any one of our uh, experts today, please reach out to us at Mercatus Outreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. Thank you and have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening to the Bridge Policy Download. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. If you would like to request a meeting with one of our scholars or ask them a question, please email outreach at mercatus.gmu.edu for more information.